everyone. How are you guys doing? Great. Great. This thing is set for Jamie. Get that thing. <laughs> Loved that one from Michigan. I bet he did. Hey, welcome to our uh, Cactus Venue Chapel and Northridge communities as they join us now, as well as all of you joining us online from around the globe. It is great to be here with you for week two of our Love One series. Uh, Jamie did such a fantastic job last week of talking us through really one main point that his sermon honed in on as we talked about what it looks like for us to love maybe just one person with the extravagant love of Jesus Christ. And that one point can really be boiled down to this. Uh, Lost people matter to God and they should matter to us. And so what we're gonna do for the next two weeks is Kevin and I are gonna take that great foundation that our senior pastor laid for us and we're gonna build onto it some very practical understandings of what does that look like? Because it is so difficult for us to take that and figure out how to do that in our culture of 2020. And that's a little bit of where I wanna start today because culture, it's a change in. Would we agree? Uh, For those of you who struggle with uh, people being younger than you, earmuffs right now, because I'm gonna talk about kind of my childhood. I was born in 1982. Yeah, there's laughs. I had a woman in the front row last night go, oh Lord. It was like, we're gonna be fine, calm down, all right. Not gonna shame me for being young. We're gonna be okay with this, all right? And so what I did was, people go, oh, so you were a child of the 80s. I don't remember the 80s. I was eight when they were over. That wasn't a thing for me. But I remember the 90s, and I remember them pretty well. And I was part of the youth groups of the 90s, and the youth groups in the 90s, like church was kind of hip to go to, right? It was kind of the, the tail end of this Christian culture that I grew up in. And so like youth groups were like three, 400 person junior high groups, five, 600 person high school groups. It was big. And I went to a a big church in Tempe. And so as we did all these things, here's what, let's just kind of zone in on what we're talking about in this series. Here's what evangelism looked like when I was a kid. Uh, They'd say, hey, we're doing an evangelism night, which was great because it meant we got to go to the mall. Okay. And I was a huge fan of going to the mall. So here's what it looked like. They'd say, hey, we've got some tracks up here. Okay. It was the four spiritual laws. And just to be clear, I don't want 600 emails. I think the four spiritual laws are awesome. It's beautiful. The gospel's laid out clearly in wonderful language, but the model that we used to evangelize was, was different than what we would use today. So here's what we would do. They'd say, come up and get some tracks. And you were a better Christian if you took a bunch. So I just like, let's go. So we'd head out into the mall with a stack of the four spiritual laws and you'd walk up to the first person, okay? I did most of the talking. My friends sort of kind of hung around me. They're like, hey, Rustin, go, go talk to him. So I'd walk up and I'd say, hey, how's it going? We're with the church. My name's Rustin. These are my friends. I'm in junior high. Uh, We're talking about Jesus today. Do you know Jesus? Okay, here's the response I would typically get, okay? You know what? We go to a church. We're super proud of you kids. You guys keep it up. Now, what do I know? I can't walk back with 60 tracks like I didn't talk to anybody. So I'd say this, hey, we're doing a two for one special today. Here you go, take a couple. Give them to somebody who doesn't know the Lord. We'll talk to you soon. Person two, person three, person four, same experience over and over and over again. It was extremely rare to bump into somebody. And I'm not saying everybody knew the Lord. What I'm saying is people had a God awareness, a church awareness. There was sort of a general understanding of we kind of understand the church thing. And even if they weren't necessarily in like a thriving relationship with Christ, it was sort of one of those, we're proud of you kids, okay? Let's juxtapose that with kind of what's going on in our culture today. Can you imagine if I took my sweet little nine-year-old daughter who is probably more verbal than I am, gave her a handful of these tracks and sent her into Fashion Square? 
Guys, that wouldn't be the same experience that I had at all. That sweet little girl probably walk in there and she'd hear a lot of stuff like this. Um, no, thank you. No, I'm okay. Um, you know what? Uh, I, I don't want to go to your church. Or at the most extreme, um, little girl, someone should have told you that's really offensive. And as a matter of fact, um, I, who, is there an adult with you? I, I'd like to talk to them about what it means or what it looks like for you to have conversations like these because this is not an appropriate topic. What's changed since the 90s when I was doing the Blitzkrieg evangelism that was kind of normal at the time to now in a culture that I would call and many have called a post-Christian culture? Because there's been a shift. And for those of you who are panicking right now, like I'm about to start laying out a different gospel, here's what hasn't changed. The good news. The good news has not changed. It's the same good news that has been given for 2,000 years. The good news that Jesus Christ came back to love man because man couldn't get to God. And the good news that he came and did the extravagant, the only thing that only he could do, which was to give his life to pay for the sins of mankind and to open a doorway, a narrow road, for man to walk back into relationship with God. So if the truth hasn't changed, then what has? Culture has changed and the reality is that we don't have the same foundation that we used to share with so many. That foundation of kind of God aware or church aware has gone. And so now in a culture where most people are unfamiliar with church or at the very worst would feel unsafe in one, we need not a new gospel because the one we have is beautiful. We need a new model. And I think the new model that Jamie has kind of continued to press into me in my years in ministry under him is a relational model. It's a model based on relationship. It's a model that we actually see Jesus use in his time, because let's be honest, there's never been a more kind of Christ unaware culture than the one that Jesus walked into. Kind of makes sense. Nobody was Christ aware before Christ showed up. Kind of makes sense. I'm glad that worked. I was kind of wondering about that joke, whether it kind of flanned today. Here's what I want us to do today, and it's kind of my primary slide. My entire sermon can be boiled down to this. I want us to take some original steps, some kind of beginning awareness and steps towards building a relationship bridge that Jesus can walk across. Building a relationship bridge that Jesus can walk across. I heard that at a Young Life event years ago, and I think it's beautiful. Because in a culture where there's not the bridge of common culture understanding around church and Jesus, we've got to look at something kind of different and we've got to approach the gospel in a different way. So before we do that, let's bow our heads and let me pray for us. Father, as we come into this today, we just recognize that the world has changed a lot since the tail end of a Christian culture. And as we sit in a post-Christian culture today, trying to kind of reconcile what it looks like to carry your truth, we see that you have truly gone before us on this one. There has never been a more um, kind of Christian unaware culture than the one that you stepped into. And so as we look at two passages today out of the book of Luke, where you so deeply and lovingly went in with relationship to care for these two men, Lord, would you teach us what it is that we should be doing, how we should be approaching a culture that in so many ways is unfamiliar and in some ways feels very unsafe to enter your house. Uh, Father, this is our goal today. I just pray that you would empower these words that you would speak through me and that you would move me completely out of the way. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so we're gonna look at two passages today. Book of Luke, we're gonna look at Luke 19 and a sweet little guy named Zacchaeus. We're also gonna look at Luke 18 and the rich young ruler. So first passage today is Luke 19 verses one through 10. It says, he entered Jericho, that's Jesus, and was passing through. 
And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, is also, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Such a beautiful phrase at the end there. All right, so let's kind of break this apart and let's kind of understand a little bit of Zacchaeus and what his expectation was in the midst of this moment. Zacchaeus is kind of, you know, we remember the song from Sunday school, a wee little man and a wee little man was he. So Zacchaeus' general experience with the world is he stands in crowds and stares into the middle of everybody's back, okay? It sounds like he's not well-liked, so he's not real comfortable in the crowds because most people hate him. We'll explain that in just a second. But there's this moment where he kind of goes, you know what, I want to see this Jesus guy. The guy who's been walking around and healing people. The guy who has stood in the midst of the crowds. He's teaching and captivating synagogues. And people are baffled by this guy. I want to see him. So he runs ahead. He climbs up this tree. And Jesus has got a day, okay? We understand that if Jesus is walking somewhere, he probably had a destination. And in the midst of this destination, he comes in and he stops. And he looks up and says, hey, guy. No, he doesn't say, hey, guy. With great intentionality, he calls Zacchaeus by name. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry down here. I must come to your house. I must spend time with you today. Zacchaeus' expectation was just to see him. But the Lord Jesus Christ goes so far beyond Zacchaeus' expectation And he actually calls him by name intentionally saying, I need to come and spend some time with you. I need to get to know you. And this is the first point for your notes today and I want you to kind of zero in on it. Great relationship, this relational model of evangelism has us needing to be intentional because great relationship doesn't happen by accident. Be intentional. Jesus walks in in the midst of this culture that doesn't know him And he starts creating relationships. I want you to know he's laying out a model for us. He's letting us know this is what it looks like to love well, to love even just one. Again, Jamie told us last week that lost people matter to God and they should matter to us. This intentionality that Jesus lays out with Zacchaeus is showing Zacchaeus how much he matters, that in the midst of the crowd, he was called out by name and was cared for and ministered to. But we gotta get some context on this Zacchaeus guy. Zacchaeus, it says, is a tax collector, and he is rich. Here's the broken, corrupt system for collecting taxes in Rome in the first century, okay? Rome collected a lot of taxes. Jesus even said, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. So Zacchaeus was the type of guy who showed up to your house. Now, we'll stay with kind of common um, money for now, and we'll just say, all right, here's the deal. Zacchaeus shows up. You know what you owe for taxes is 100 bucks for the month, okay? Zacchaeus walks in, and he goes, uh, hey, how's it going? They go, yeah, no, you're here for taxes. That's great. We're not pumped about it. Here's our 100 bucks. And he goes, oh, hey, sorry about that. Uh, it's 200 this month. 
$200. You go, why is it $200? Here's how broken the system was. Because I said so was a perfectly reasonable reason for you to have to pay twice the amount of taxes. Now, as you're sitting there going back into your savings or your money for the week and realizing you're not gonna have enough to put food on the table, you peer out your front door and you go, uh, Zacchaeus, is that a brand new chariot you just rolled in in? Is that, uh, that's the newest model you got over there? That's the, uh, you know, 450? They go, yeah, yeah, that's a new, new model. Uh, just a heads up, appreciate the 200, probably 300 next month, I'm getting the spinning rims. And you're just like, you gotta be kidding me, man. This guy is living like a king by bilking the local area for all it's worth. They can barely afford to put food on the table and the tax collectors of the time are taking the abundance and in this fra- using the phrasing of the scriptures are becoming very rich. So when this crowd is sitting there and watching this man of great hope come in and like they said, they are grumbling. You gotta be kidding me, Zacchaeus of all the people. Why? He's gone in to be the guest of a sinner. This guy's the worst. He's robbing from us. But I want you to see in this moment is that Zacchaeus has an experience with the Lord. He comes in and and Jesus says something pretty profound at the end here. If you look at it, it says, Jesus declares, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation, saved. This house has been saved. Zacchaeus has been saved. Why? Because in the midst of this intentionality, Zacchaeus comes down from this tree and is captivated by the Lord. And and Jesus doesn't even have to ask him for anything. Zacchaeus is so captivated and so in love with Jesus just through this experience in relationship that he looks at him and he goes, I gotta gotta come clean. I gotta gotta fix something. Here's the reality. Just so you know, Lord, I I take half of what I have. Just, you know, it's easy for us to read this and go, well, he probably should have. Anybody wanna give up half their net worth today? And then make a commitment that if you've ever done anybody wrong, probably by their perception, not yours, you're gonna give up to fourfold of what that is. All those months that he'd been taking an extra hundred from everybody, 400's coming back. Just give half of your net worth away today and then make a commitment to extravagantly give and right wrongs from there. This was a massive commitment. But what I want you to see that's happening at a spiritual level, which is what Jesus knows. Remember, we spent all last summer talking about the Sermon on the Mount and how the heart is what Jesus is always looking at. What Jesus is looking at with Zacchaeus in this moment is he's going, you have been so enamored with the God of money. You have been serving this God of money. Your heart has been longing after wealth and riches for so long. What Jesus sees in this moment is that instead of serving the God of money, there's a moment of repentance, a turning from the God of money and going, it matters not at all anymore. Accumulating wealth doesn't matter. I have found something so precious in you. And he turns from idolatry of money over to Jesus, Jesus sees this repentant heart and declares something profound. He says, salvation has come to this house today and then declares his grand purpose for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Uh, Here's the reality. Jesus was intentional and Zacchaeus was saved. It's a really good thing for us to kind of hone in on. Let's apply this to our culture today because our culture is in a funny spot. And I would tell you, we're a little bit cursed because of the culture today, and we're a little bit blessed. And I want to define both of those things. Here's the curse of our culture today. Our culture has left us radically relationally disconnected from each other. Radically. I mean, I sit down all the time and meet with people, and the amount of loneliness that I listen to 
Because most relationships that people have are in many cases digital and extremely shallow. These digital relationships or even some of the surface level shallow relationships that we have are perceivably useless because they give the perception of relationship but without the rich content. See, the curse is it's really hard to find authentic relationship in today's culture. We don't, we've lost a lot of the skills too. I just, I, I sit back so many times and I recognize that like people skills are kind of a lost art. Conflict resolution, forget it. I got so many people who, even in the church, guys, like, I mean, we're kind of talking about, you know, people in the church, people outside of the church. Let's just be clear. Like in 2020, so many people don't know how to do conflict. I see it all the time. People come in and they'll sit there and they'll go, oh man, this person just really hurt me. Like, I mean, it's been really tough. And so, you know what? I don't really want to talk to them about that. I don't want to give them a chance to kind of fix this and let's work through it. So I'm just going to pull back. I'm going to leave. And what happens is in the midst of this, there isn't an awareness or a common place like Matthew 18 talks about where you just kind of, what's the first step in conflict? Come to the individual, let them know that you hurt, that they hurt you and give them a chance to repent. And in most cases, if we just took that step, we'd go a long way, but conflict resolution has gone out the window. See, the curse is that we just don't know really how to be in relationship with each other in so many cases. And I'll admit, my generation is worse at this and the ones behind uh, than, than many others. But here's the blessing. The bar's really low. <laughs> the bar's really low today. People are not expecting much out of relationship. As a matter of fact, so many people who are walking around, just to give you an example, like if you're in your neighborhood and you're sitting there and let's say you have somebody who lives next door to you or down the street and you sort of see them coming and going night after night and you see that their spouse travels a ton and they've got kids running around and you kind of see the chaos of like getting out of the car, all right, everybody in, I gotta get dinner started. How hard would it be to throw like three or four extra chicken breasts into the pot to make a little extra dinner, plate that thing up with some rice and just walk over? Like, hey, uh, how's it going? Listen, we, could, we know you're home alone a lot with the kids. And, you know, we noticed that. And all, all we wanted to do was kind of just bring you a meal tonight. I don't know if that would help. And just kind of say, you know, periodically, maybe once, twice a month, we'd love to just kind of throw a little extra in there just to help you out. We don't have any strings attached. They are going to look at you and go, what are you, are you gonna, do I need to give you like my social security number? Like, are you gonna... Ask me to join a cult. What happens next? Like, this is a weird deal. Why? Because the bar's really low. And loving someone is so easy today. But we just simply walk past those opportunities left and right because we're like, oh, we're really busy. I don't want to get to heaven someday. And the Lord go, hey, um, I put a bunch of people in proximity to you who needed love. What were you up to? Lord, I was super busy. Culture really wasn't in a place where relationships worked. I believe the Lord's going to look at us and go, didn't work. The bar had never been lower. The most backwards introverted person in the world could have taken chicken next door. Come on. The bar's low. It's easy for us to move into those loving spaces. Let's be willing to be intentional where it's going to work. Okay, next, let's look at the rich young ruler here for just a second. Luke 18, it says this. It says, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Here's what I want you to see. This entire setup, and we're going to break this down in just a second, starts with a question. Starts with a very simple question. This guy comes in. I'm going to explain all of his expectations in just a second. But here's what I want you to see. It's your second point today. We've got to be willing, after we're intentional, we've got to be willing to be inquisitive because great relationship doesn't happen out of ignorance. We've got to be, in, we've got to be inquisitive on top of being intentional, okay? Let's describe this scene. I've kind of studied it a bunch this week because it's easy for us to hear this in this passage. This super nice guy came in and was like, Jesus, I really want you. And Jesus is like, well, here's the price of admission. And so go give away your stuff. And the guy's like, oh, I don't know. That seems like a lot. I guess I can't have like eternal life. I guess you don't want to be with me. That ain't what happened here at all. Let's look under the surface at what's going on. This guy comes in. He looks at him and he says, hey, good teacher. Here's what he's doing. Flattery. Here's what he expected. Hey, good ruler. Look like a rich guy. There's always room for a rich guy in my camp. Why don't you come on over? I could use a guy like you. He's flattering Jesus. And instead of kind of playing the game, again, Jesus goes straight to the heart. And he does so with a question. Takes his flattery and kind of turns it around on him. Hey, good teacher. Instead of returning the flattery, he looks at him and he says this. Why do you call me good? Only one is good. And he turns his attention to what the man needs most, which is a relationship with God. So they kind of play the game a little bit for a second. Jesus kind of comes back and he probes in past the good, but he starts with a question and opens a dialogue. Looks in and he says, what do I need for eternal life? So this, this is what he rattles off. He says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness and honor your father and mother. Quick question, is that all the commandments? Say no. No, it's not. It's actually a very specific collection of commandments, okay? The scholars would say this, every one of those commandments has to do with one of two things, kin or community. All of them are others focused. What Jesus is exposing in our friend, the rich young ruler, is this. You came to me and you asked for eternal life. Here's what you hear in that church. You hear, I wanna be saved. That's not what he was asking for. What he was saying was, I'm pretty rich. I've heard you've got kind of an inside track on how to keep this thing going forever. I'd be interested in keeping all the me-focused life that I've got going forever. He's not asking for Jesus. He's not asking for relationship. He's asking for riches. And Jesus keeps taking this selfish motive and trying to redirect it to selfless things. Each and every one of these, let's look at these commandments real quick. Don't commit adultery. People tend to prefer when you not mess with their wives, okay? That's an others-focused thing. Murder, people are fond of that not happening. Don't steal from others. Don't lie and bear false witness about others, which is something that you could have been paid to do during that day. Hey, I'll give you some money, I'll bribe you. You say this about this person. It says, don't do that. 
and honor your father and mother. Again, all of it others focused. This man's desire, which Jesus is exposing in this dialogue, is all of a sudden starting to reveal and open this man's heart. It's saying, hey, you weren't after this at all. Let me show you what you need the most. And so Jesus kind of comes in with this final little volley on this match that they're in. He says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The passage reports something really beautiful here. It's hidden in the language and so I'll break it apart for you. It says that he became very sad. It's probably a little more than that. The Greek word that they use to describe very sad here is the word paralipos. It's actually the same Greek word that they use to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, when Jesus came to this radical place where he understands his divine appointment with atonement for the sin of the world, the night when our Lord and Savior sweat blood for your sin and for mine, he sat there completely devastated, overwhelmed, and wrecked by the task ahead of him. That is the same word that it describes in the midst of this man's revelation. And here's why, church. Because the self-generated garbage that he called righteousness for his entire life, the good behavior, the I've done all those things since my youth had been weighed, had been measured, and had been found wanting. In the midst of this moment, he sat there and he said, I've got nothing to offer. I was so hoping that I could keep this self-centered merry-go-round going for all of eternity. And what Jesus is exposing in this moment is a rock-bottom wrecked experience. Because he's realizing in the midst of this moment, I don't know if I can do that. And it says this, and it's in complete juxtaposition to what Zacchaeus did earlier. Zacchaeus sat there, he had a revelation. The God of money was not scratching the itch anymore and he turns with glee and joy back to Jesus. It says he joyfully received him. This man is in the midst of the same potential revelation, but he simply stands there and with a completely exposed heart, with an open heart, he stands there and he goes, I don't want to turn to you with joy, so I will turn paralipos and I will turn back to sadly and hopelessly serving the God of money. He's got nothing left in this moment. It is a devastating thing to watch someone look at the love of Jesus and say, I think the price is too high, or I'm just too in love with the life I have to walk into one that you tell me could be better. Here's our application. I need you to see that good questions and being inquisitive lead to dialogues that lead to open hearts. The reality is a relational model of evangelism has the sole purpose of creating a comfort level with questions that can start to lead in to some areas. So let's get super practical. Let's get kitchen table, I'm in the moment, what do I do with my friend who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't really know what to do with all this? Listen. You don't have to have answers. You need great ears, not a great mouth. If you simply listen for the way that every individual that you're trying to love well talks about themselves, the world, or God, three great categories, themselves, the world, and God. Listen to how they talk about those three things. Listen to what they say. Because when they talk about themselves, they're gonna say something like, you know, I'm just really not that great a dad. I just, I screw it up all the time. Or women, I'm just, I'm a terrible mom. 
You have an opportunity to do two things. One, you can encourage them. And in that moment, you can say this. Hey, you know what? I've actually not observed that. I, I think there's a lot of spots where you're a really good mom. We've all got room to grow, but you're a really good mom. What is it that you've experienced that kind of influences or colors in that belief? It's a great question. What is it you've experienced that's causing you to believe that? Listen to what they say about God, okay? There's gonna be times where you sit down with people and you start talking and they're gonna do this. It's gonna get awkward, it's fine. You can handle awkward, all right? You've listened to me for 20 minutes. It's been awkward every once in a while. We've made it through it, all right? Here's the deal. You sit down with somebody at the table and they go, oh, those crazy Christians. You know what's okay to say? Look around, guys. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Okay, we're a little crazy. You could say that. You just go, oh, yeah, well, that's okay. Hey, what is it you've experienced that kind of causes you to believe that Christians are crazy? You know what they're gonna say? Oh my gosh, you don't go to church, do you? And you can go, yeah, I do, but hey, it's okay. I, I'll give you that. We're a little crazy. But what is it you've experienced? Would you be willing to share that with me? My feelings aren't hurt. I, it's okay. You didn't offend me. Don't be so offendable. We need a little thicker skin. The world's got some stuff to say about us. Some of it's right. And we gotta work a little harder to get in there and to love well and love one. But in those moments, you get to ask questions. Hey, what is it you've experienced? Hey, what's going on in your heart with that? And slowly but surely, you start to open doors with questions that lead to dialogues that lead to open hearts. All right, here's our, here's our next point. And I want us to kind of dive into it because we're gonna take these two stories and push them together. Our third point is we need to learn to be obedient, okay? And what that looks like is us following Jesus' model and trusting in his majesty, okay? Here's what this looks like. We have to remember that when we're reading Jesus' account, the gospels, of him interacting with people who don't know him, You've got to remember, you're talking about a direct connect relationship. Savior with needed savee. You need to recognize when we're out there doing evangelism, we are a third-party vendor to the Savior. We are stepping in to say, not, hey, come check out my wisdom. Come check out my majesty. I got some great ideas for what you might need in your life, your marriage, or your parenting. I'm saying, I don't have the answers. He does. What you need most is a direct relationship with him, one that I would love to encourage you in. And we need to remember that. So let's look at our stories, right? So Zacchaeus, like we said, has this profound moment, turns, repents. Zacchaeus only gives half of his stuff up. He gives a commitment to more, but he gives up half of his stuff. In the midst of that experience, isn't it funny that all of a sudden you look at the rich young ruler and the price was a lot higher, wasn't it? Give up everything and come and follow me. Why these two different things? Because Jesus' goal was to expose idolatry and then let their hearts respond. Jesus' goal was not punitive. It wasn't to punish these men. It wasn't to come back and to say, hey, you can't do this or you can't do that. It was simply to expose their hearts and then to look for the response of repentance and say, my goal is to have your heart be captivated with me. For Zacchaeus, that only took half his wealth. For the rich young ruler, he simply saw the price and went, oh, I guess I was never really after that. See, we've got to continue to remember in the midst of our obedience, Jesus' model is beautiful. Being intentional, being inquisitive and pursuing people is what we need to be doing. But at the end of the day, and I hope this is a great comfort to all of us, we're not going to save anybody. It's not up to us. Our job is to go and to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, but it is Jesus that saves souls. Our job is to be his hands and feet. And folks, when I look around our world, I see a lot of people in need of hands and feet. 
They need a relationship. They need a spiritual transformation. And they're walking through the world hopelessly trying to find it in all these other places. But we've got to recognize kind of our third party place. We've got to be willing to step in and to kind of see, gosh, what this person needs is not a bunch of my kind of learned wisdom, though that could be encouraging. What they're in biggest need of is for me to love them like Jesus loved me, to build that bridge. And then when the moment is right, because here's what it'll look like at that kitchen table where they're hurting so bad. Hey, my marriage is a mess. I gotta be honest, you guys look like you're doing a little better than we are over there. What's the deal? How are you doing that? And, and let me ask you a question. Why are you loving me like you are? What does this look like? Why, why are you doing this? Why are you a part of my life six months later and six months ago, I didn't know you. Boom. The relationship bridge has been built and the million dollar question is on the table. And in that moment, you get to so humbly and fearfully walk across that bridge with Jesus because here's what you get to say. Listen, this may sound a little crazy, but I just want you to know I'm loving you like somebody loved me once. I, I, I know it sounds funny, but like I have a relationship with somebody who gives me hope. That person who gives me hope is Jesus. All I'm doing isn't because I have any great agenda. It's just because there's a love in me that I'm experiencing daily. And if you want to hear more about what that looks like, that's what's helping my marriage. That's what's helping my parenting. That's what's helping all these other places in my life where I'm such a miserable mess, but I'm working hard to kind of make my way out of the mess. Is that, does that make sense? And they go, no. And you go, great, let's talk a little more about it. That's the bridge, that's the moment. But unlike culture so many years ago where people kind of knew where to come back to, it's these moments where we sit there with people who go, I've never even heard this. I don't know what's going on. Post-Christian culture creates a lot of those difficult moments. We've got to be willing to follow Jesus' model, but trust his majesty to change hearts because that's what people are most hungry for. Here's our last deal, and I want to kind of conclude with this. We'll have a little fun. We've been in the deep water thus far, but let's have a little fun with this, all right? Here's our last point. I think we need to learn to be observant because great relationship happens by knowing what the needs are, okay? So I did a little search around this week. I actually heard this song on the radio a little bit ago. Uh, I'm going to throw it all the way back, okay? Summer of 1986, for those of you who are blessed with arithmetic. I was four, all right? Uh, you guys remember a guy named Steve Winwood? Yeah, he sang the song. Who knows it? Wow. Okay, crickets, no big deal. Bring me a higher love. You guys remember this one? Bring me a higher love. And now you know why I don't sing worship, okay? Quietly. My biggest fear is that my mic would be on during worship. That terrifies me every week, all right? Steve Winward sang, sang this song. It's super funny. For those of you who haven't, my generation, I went back, I watched the video. The hair was a real gift. It was something. There was a lot of it, okay? Steve Winward sings this song, and here's what's so funny to me. This song won't go away. It, it, 86, we're, it's been a minute since 1986, okay? And this song keeps coming back. Whitney Houston redid it. She covered it in like 90. Just last summer in 2019, uh, a Norwegian DJ comes out, takes Whitney Houston's cover of it, and posthumously, she's back on the charts as she's sitting here singing this song with this DJ now. And I'm just like, man, this song, and by the way, so many others that have what I'm about to draw out in common, this song keeps coming back. What is it? It's a secular song. Now, Steve Winwood said at one point, you know, his dad was a preacher, and he said, you know, it's kind of a modern hymn. It's kind of this thing that I sort of see as us having a need that's kind of greater than things. I watched the video. Old Stevie looks like he's a little more focused on the girl in the video than he might be in the Lord, which is not the point, but here's the deal. 
I think if we're gonna kind of step in, and there's a reason I'm using this song, if we're gonna step into a relational model of evangelism, we need a new lens to look at the world. We've gotta be willing to look at the world differently. And what I love about this song that just won't go away is the fact that it's a secular song that's basically saying this, I'm searching the world. I'm in relationship after relationship after relationship. I'm in addiction after addiction after addiction. I'm searching through all of these different things that the world has to offer me. Whether it's kind of reinventing myself through gender, through sexuality, through all these things, I'm searching tirelessly within the world to try and find something to fill this spot in my soul. And what I love about this song is that it says there's gotta be more. Bring me a higher love. The last relationship didn't work. I'll try another one. I'll try another one. I'll try another one. And in the midst of our culture that sits there and thinks to itself, oh my gosh, there's got to be more. It's crying out for a higher form of love. You know, what's hard is, I think as a church so many times, we look at culture, we look at the world. We have a tendency to look at the people in it and it scares us. Many of us are very afraid of the culture today. And in the midst of being afraid, the, original, like the, the, the most predominant emotional response defends us, and that response is to get angry. We become afraid because it's scary. We become angry because that makes us feel defended, and it kind of plays itself out in judgment. Isn't it funny that those are the three things that the culture seems to think about us? Oh, these church people scare easy. They're always so angry and so judgmental. In so many cases, we've earned that reputation, rightfully so. Here's the problem. When we talk about a Christian culture, here's what Christian culture does. It produces guys like me. It produces prodigals. Produces people who grew up in church, know the truth, had a very genuine relationship with God, but just couldn't quite figure it out, so I ran away. And then, when when times got really tough, when life got really bad, I came home. I prodigaled and I returned home. Here's the challenge, church. There's an entire generation of people out there who have been raised in a, like a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian society, and this generation of people has never been home. They don't know where home is. And we are in such a desperate need for the culture today to see the hands and the feet of Jesus go out and to love people one chicken dinner at a time, one relationship at a time, because it's hurting and it doesn't have the homing beacon of prodigal in their life. They are dying. They are crying out for a higher love through relationships and addictions and broken models, broken truth, and a complete ambiguity of everything. And they're sitting there saying, there's gotta be more. And for the first time, the church needs to Stop being afraid, stop being angry and judgmental, and look at the behavior of the world as a cry for help and not as an assault on your belief system. They're dying inside. They're looking for a place to go. But here's what's hardest. This place doesn't feel safe to them. The bridge that these people need to come home is going to be built at kitchen tables and coffee houses because they're hungry for so much more than this world has ever given them. And unless we're willing to go out and show the extravagant, painful, sacrificial love of Jesus to them at no cost to them, they're gonna die out there in a world not knowing where it is. Our biggest challenge today is that so many of us have operated under the model of because I'm afraid and because I'm angry, I've pulled back from the culture and here's what I've said. You know what? There's a church on every corner. If they don't wanna walk into one, that's on them. They don't know to walk into one. 
because they've never been in one. And it's not inherent like it was for me to come back to church, to come home. They've never been home. They don't know that home is safe. And until we build relationships with the culture, it's gonna be really hard for them to ever stand there and say, I'd like to have more of this family you talk about and I would love to come see what your house looks like. The culture's super hungry. But when lost people show up, they're gonna show up with lost problems and lost lives. And we've gotta have thick enough skin to love them right where they're at, just like somebody loved us when we showed up broken as well. Here's my hope. My hope is that we are willing to kind of look and pray and to be honest, to beg God for four things. We're gonna have a response time in just a moment as we go to our elder fun time at all of our campuses. But here's my hope. These are the four things I think and I pray. I wanna be the kind of church that asks for these things. I wanna be the kind of church that walks into the world with hopeful eyes, with merciful hearts, with intentional actions and with thoughtful questions. The world is in desperate need of us having these four things. We don't look at people and go, he's, he's gone. No, you have hopeful eyes. Christ saved you. He can certainly save someone else. We go in and we just look with mercy like Jamie preached about a little bit ago. No, no, no. There's so much more out there. We just need to be willing to love through the mess because Jesus is so good at taking a mess and turning it into a masterpiece. We need to be intentional in how we pursue the world and we need to ask great, thoughtful questions about what's going on in their lives. We're gonna have some time, like I said, to just kind of reflect now, but next week, Kevin's gonna come back and he's gonna talk to us about what it means for us to give the gospel. What it means for us to stand up and to say, hey, listen, in that moment when you're asked the million dollar question, you can confidently say, hey, here's what it is. In the midst of us being afraid at times, we tend to respond and go, oh, Jesus is kind of an off limits topic. No, when you get into the final round and you've earned that right to stand there and to tell someone who you love what it looks like for you to be loved by Jesus, we need to be well equipped. Always be prepared to give an account for the hope that is in you. That's what Peter tells us. Kevin's gonna come back next week and talk about it. But what I wanna do right now is I wanna just focus us in and maybe start that process as we think about that one that we're gonna love I wanna start that process today of us just being willing to come in and to start begging God, hey, if, if you know that some of the things I've said today, that you're afraid, that you're angry, and that you're judgmental towards the world, ask God to start changing your heart. Ask God to start helping you see the world through that lens of they're just crying out for a higher love. So are we in so many ways. Let's do this. Let me pray for us as each of our campuses get ready to go to that time of elder fund. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together today. Lord, we thank you for the way that you loved us first. You moved first. Everything we do in our Christian lives is a response to your extravagant sacrifice. So we recognize today that you are the one who cares for us. You are the one who moved first. And Lord, when we respond to the world around us, we're responding to something that you initiated. Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. I pray that you'd be with all of us as we walk out this week and start this process of begging you to move in our lives. We pray this in your name, amen.